Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on the Haitian Revolution, we watched as the revolution broke out in earnest in Saint-Domingue, the French colony that would one day become the independent country of Haiti. Conflict between the various factions of the free, that is to say, non-enslaved, people in the colony, began almost as soon as word of the revolution in France reached the island. But, it is worth bearing in mind that the free population of Saint-Domingue numbered just under 70,000, while the slave population was over 450,000. And, while their masters were busy tearing each other apart over their different interpretations of what the revolution meant to them, the slaves bided their time. Their moment came in late August, 1791, when the slaves of northern Saint-Domingue rose up en masse in a coordinated, self-determined, and violent insurrection. The former slaves laid waste to the sugar plantations of the northern plain, destroying the machinery and burning the cane fields to ashes. They took vengeance upon their former masters, inflicting on them horrors that were mere images of the indignities that they had suffered under slavery. The white colonists of Saint-Domingue scrambled to organize a proper response, but they were tactically outmatched by the insurgents. They could do nothing but fall back and attempt to hold the city of Le Cap. Meanwhile, the soot and ash from the burning plantations blotted out the sun, and the flames tinted the sky red. In the colony's western and southern provinces, there was still something resembling order. The slave rebellion had been largely contained to the northern province, so the slaves of the west and south remained confined to their plantations. This is not to say that there was no conflict in this part of the colony. There definitely was. This civil war was fought between the whites and the free people of color. The free people of color wanted the civil and political rights they believed that they were owed as free men. The whites refused to grant them, and so conflict ensued. The conflict was nearly resolved in November 1791, when, in the wake of the slave revolt in the north, the two belligerents, both of whom were terrified at the prospect of a slave rebellion, agreed to set aside their differences. This was until the fragile peace was broken when a free man of color was subjected to a hate crime on the streets of Port-au-Prince. The situation quickly spiraled out of control. Fighting between the whites and the free people of color broke out once more, and two-thirds of the city of Port-au-Prince were burnt to the ground. The militias of the free people of color retreated from the city and subjected it to a siege. News of the slave revolt was slow to make its way to metropolitan France, but when it did, it forced the National Assembly, which had thus far been prevented from doing anything about the colonial issue by the planter lobby, to finally debate the colonial question openly. It was decided that, in order to maintain slavery, and thereby to maintain the colony, the free people of color had to be granted the rights for which they had been struggling for decades. The National Assembly dispatched three commissioners, Laguerre Felicité Santanax, Etienne Pauvrel, and Jean-Antoine Alliode, to Saint-Domingue to enforce this new decree. Along with them, they sent an army, 4,000 lower-class National Guardsmen and 2,000 regular soldiers. Santanax was described by historian C.L.R. James as a right-wing Jacobin, that is to say, practically a Girondin. Fellow historian Carolyn Fick is a bit kinder to Santanax, calling him a, quote, thoughtful and practical revolutionary, end quote. Pulverel was of the same ideological bent, while Aliode will not really be relevant in the narrative going forward, as he abandoned his fellow commissioners at his first opportunity. From the moment the commissioners landed in Saint-Domingue on September 18, 1792, they were both feared and disliked by the white colonists. 
To their surprise, the news that the National Assembly had declared the free people of color to be full citizens of France, and that all the racial discrimination was abolished, was taken rather well by the majority of whites in the colony. A whole year of slave rebellion had convinced most whites that cooperation with the free people of color was the only way to restore order to the colony. However, while the commissioner's only directive was to enforce the decree of April 4th, nearly everyone suspected that they harbored ulterior motives. The big whites of Saint-Domingue, that is to say the upper-class plantation owners, worried that the commissioners had in fact come to abolish slavery entirely. The big whites had stayed informed on the events transpiring in metropolitan France, and the abolitionist rhetoric of some members of the National Assembly greatly concerned them. In fact, many of the big whites had grown wary of the revolution entirely. Where once they saw an opportunity to acquire increased political and economic rights from France, they now foresaw the destruction of their fortunes and their way of life. More and more, big whites began to ally themselves with the royalist cause. The small whites, on the other hand, while more revolutionary in their disposition, still viewed the metropolitan government as being tyrannical, no matter how radical it might be on paper. They tended to believe that the commissioners had come to countermand the authority of the colonial assembly, which they saw as the true focal point of democracy in Saint-Domingue. With nowhere else left to turn for allies, the commissioners sought to curry favor with the free people of color. After all, the free people of color were very well disposed to the commissioners, as they had just been granted the rights that they had been struggling for decades to acquire. To ensure the support of the free people of color, Santanax and Polverell pursued a policy of full racial equality. Just because most white colonists were willing, however begrudgingly, to accept that the free people of color were now technically citizens on equal standing with themselves, that did not mean that racial prejudice simply disappeared overnight. One prominent plantation owner wrote to Santanax in September 1792, quote, we did not go and buy on the African coast some 500,000 enslaved savages to bring them into the colony with the status and title of French citizens, end quote. Santanax fought back vehemently against those who expressed such sentiments. Borrowing from the sort of revolutionary rhetoric that was all too common back in Paris, he lashed out at these people as being aristocrats of the skin, an epithet whose meaning should be obvious. Conflict between the big white royalists and the commissioners came to a head in October, 1792. The origin of this conflict, however, is not entirely clear. Historian Laurent Dubois asserts that open conflict erupted in Le Cap when Santanax attempted to place a free man of color as an officer in the local National Guard regiment. When the regiment refused to accept his authority and rebelled, the 2,000 regular soldiers joined them. Dubois' predecessor, C.L.R. James, wrote that it was news of events back in France that had finally ignited the conflict. The revolutionary masses of Paris had finally deposed King Louis XVI and declared France to be a republic, and it was for this reason that the royalists sympathizing regular soldiers rebelled against Santanax. Whatever the case, Santanax, with the help of a brilliant military officer from France named Etienne Laveau, stamped out this rebellion before it could get out of hand. He then had the leaders of this rebellion deported back to France to stand trial for treason. While Santanax and Polverell worked to eradicate racial discrimination among the free people of Saint-Domingue, the soldiers who had accompanied them to the colony got to work on their task, putting down the slave revolt. Etienne Laveau took command of the army and led them in a series of victories against the insurgents in late 1792 to early 1793, leading Santanax to describe the general as a miracle worker. The rebel's strength had been greatly reduced by famine and disease, 
and it seemed to many that they were on the brink of defeat. But, no matter how many insurgents were killed, or how many insurgent camps were captured, they could not exterminate them entirely. As the wife of a wealthy planter wrote, quote, We kill many of them, and they seem to reproduce themselves out of the ashes. End quote. Time was on the side of the insurgents. Despite their initial victories, the French were fighting a losing battle. The soldiers, who were straight from Europe and had most likely never encountered a tropical climate before, were vulnerable to local diseases. Actual numbers are rather hard to come by, but anecdotal evidence suggests that nearly half of the French soldiers had succumbed to tropical diseases within two months of arriving in Saint-Domingue. Meanwhile, back in Europe, the revolution only continued to radicalize. After the king was deposed and the republic was declared in September 1792, the monarchies of Europe banded together in an anti-French coalition and vowed to crush the revolution and restore the unfortunate Louis XVI to his rightful place as the king of France. Before they could accomplish this, however, the king's own people put him on trial and had him executed early the next year. The beheading of the king sent shockwaves throughout Europe, and more European countries joined the ever-growing anti-French coalition. This is all relevant to our narrative, because among these countries were Spain and Britain, the other two principal imperial powers in the Caribbean. Spanish and British policymakers saw the war as a perfect opportunity to seize Saint-Domingue from their French rivals. Because, in spite of the devastation it had endured over the last year and a half, it was still considered to be the most valuable colony in the world. The Spanish, whom it must be remembered, owned the eastern two-thirds of the island of Hispaniola, were in a position to strike first. As I explained in the previous episode, the Spanish had been in informal contact with the two leaders of the slave rebellion, Jean-Francois Papillon and Georges Biassou. After all, the two generals were claiming to fight on behalf of the King of France, to whom the King of Spain was related. The insurgents carried loot from the plantations they raided across the border to Spanish Santo Domingo, as they called their portion of the island, and, in exchange for said loot, the Spanish were more than happy to part with surplus arms and ammunition. When war formally broke out between France and Spain in early 1793, Spanish armies did not immediately cross the border into French Saint-Domingue. Instead, they reached out to the leaders of the insurgency and offered them a deal. If they would fight against the French as soldiers of the army of the Spanish king, the Spanish would, upon victory, allow them, according to a letter written by a Spanish officer, quote, freedom, exemptions, favors, and privileges like those of the king's own subjects, end quote. A quote from C.L.R. James. Here were white men offering them guns and ammunition and supplies, recognizing them as soldiers and treating them as equals, and asking them to shoot other whites, end quote. Jean-Francois and Biassou accepted this offer in a heartbeat. Renewed Spanish support allowed the slave army to recover from the defeats that had been dealt over the previous months, and very soon, the insurgents had surrounded Le Cap once again, menacing the city from atop the hills that surrounded it. Meanwhile, the British began to cultivate different allies in Saint-Domingue, the Big Whites. Thus far, the British response to events unfolding in Saint-Domingue had been rather apathetic. In the early stages of the slave revolt, a group of planters had petitioned Britain to intervene in the colony. In return, they received nothing but empty platitudes. When he was first informed of the slave revolt in Saint-Domingue, British Prime Minister William Pitt wryly replied that the French would now have to drink their coffee with caramel. For the time being, the British were simply content to sit back and watch the prized possession of its greatest rival go up in flames. Once war officially broke out between Britain and France in early 1793, however, 
the British decided that now was the time to take advantage of the chaos in Saint-Domingue to acquire the colony for themselves. The planters were growing increasingly desperate. Between the increasing radicalization of the revolution in metropolitan France, the perceived tyranny of the commissioners, and of course, the ongoing slave rebellion, many began to see British occupation as their only chance to preserve their way of life. Even many free people of color, who had just been granted full rights by the French Republic, were clamoring for British intervention, actively choosing their wealth and property over their liberty. By the time war had reached Saint-Domingue, the commissioners had split up. Polverel and Aliod were to take charge in the western and southern provinces of the colony, respectively, but Aliod's dereliction of duty meant that the jurisdiction of both provinces fell to Polverel. Santanax had the much more unenviable task of dealing with the northern province, home of the rebellious city of Le Cap and the epicenter of the slave revolt. Santanax moved to shore up his authority in the north in the wake of the abortive rebellion of October 1792. He dismissed the old royalist governor of Saint-Domingue, a rather old man named de Blanchaud, and had a new governor sent over from France, a man named François-Thomas Galbeau. Galbeau proved to be no more loyal to the revolutionary cause than his predecessor. Almost immediately after arriving in the colony, he began to conspire with the counter-revolutionary forces to overthrow the rule of the commissioners. Santanax, who caught wind of this plan, had Galbeau arrested and placed on a ship bound for France where he'd stand trial, just like his predecessor. Fortunately for the governor, he found that the sailors were sympathetic to his cause, and so he rallied them to go ashore and storm the town and roused the other counter-revolutionary forces of Le Cap to action. Santanax was barely able to evade capture thanks to the efforts of Jean-Baptiste Belli, a freedman officer in the National Guard. Out of desperation, Santanax had weapons distributed to urban slaves, as well as prisoners of war who were being held within the city. Fierce fighting ensued. When it seemed as though the counter-revolutionaries were on the cusp of victory, Santanax issued a bold decree. Anyone who took up arms for the Republic and fought for the defense of Le Cap would be granted their freedom. Santanax also shrewdly implied that anyone who did this would also be entitled to keep whatever loot they just so happened to come across when retaking the city. At this invitation, a rebel band of a couple thousand men, led by a man named Pierrot, came down from the tall hills surrounding Le Cap and stormed the town, driving the counter-revolutionaries into the sea. As Santanax's new army looted and burned Le Cap, many of the city's white residents fled, boarding ships and leaving Saint-Domingue, never to return. Some of these ships were bound for France, but the majority of them were headed to the United States of America, where refugees from Saint-Domingue would make up a rather sizable expatriate community in the years to come, but more on them later. Commissioner Santanax walked through the smoldering ruins of Le Cap with an army of former slaves at his back. The white counter-revolutionaries had been chased out of the city, but this was not nearly the end of all of his problems. The outbreak of war had changed the entire geopolitical equation, Knowing the strength of the famed British Navy, it would be very difficult to bring in reinforcements from France itself. The insurgents of the Northern Plain were openly collaborating with enemies of the Republic, as were the big white planters who remained in the colony. As C.L.R. James points out, the battle for Saint-Domingue was a crucial turning point in world history. If the British could capture and hold Saint-Domingue, they would have a monopoly on the sugar market. Instead of abolishing slavery as they did in 1807, they likely would have continued the slave trade at rates never before seen. But, most crucially, if Britain could take Saint-Domingue, it would be the death knell for France's colonial empire. The importance of Saint-Domingue to the French economy has been discussed at length in previous episodes, 
and the revolution did not change these facts. With Saint-Domingue under British control, France would be deprived of nearly a fifth of its economic strength, and Britain would be more powerful than ever, able to direct these revenues from their new colony to crush the revolution in France. If France was to keep Saint-Domingue in its possession, Santanax realized that drastic measures had to be taken. He saw how well the promise of freedom had motivated Pierrot's band of insurgents to fight on behalf of the Republic. Logically, Santanax sought to utilize the strategy, but on a much larger scale. On August 24, 1793, Commissioner Laguerre Felicité Santanax declared the abolition of slavery in the northern province of Saint-Domingue. The preface of the Emancipation Proclamation read, in part, quote, Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. There you have it, citizens, the gospel of France. It is high time it was proclaimed in all the departments of the Republic. Sent to Saint-Domingue by the nation as civil commissioners, our mission was to ensure the enactment of the law of April 4th, to fully enforce it, and to gradually prepare without upheaval the general emancipation of the slaves. The French Republic wants all men without distinction of color to be free and equal. Kings are only happy amidst slaves. Do not believe, however, that the liberty you are going to enjoy is a state of sloth and idleness. In France, everyone is free and everyone works. After becoming citizens of the French nation, you must also become the zealous observers of its laws, and you shall defend the interests of the Republic against kings, out of gratitude for the beneficence it has showered upon you. Have the courage to want and to be a people, and soon you will equal the nations of Europe. End quote. This was a statement that reeks of paternalist sentiment and a somewhat negative portent of what was to come, but nevertheless, it was a massive development. Not only were the slaves of Saint-Domingue free at last, but they were fully enfranchised citizens as well, completely equal in the eyes of the French Republic. Exactly how much credit Santanax personally deserves for the abolition of slavery is a matter of historical debate. Some historians believe that the circumstances of the war with Britain and Spain had forced his hand. They see Santanax as a non-entity, just a victim of historical forces well beyond his control. Other historians point to Santanax's previously expressed abolitionist sentiments, as evidenced by a journal article he wrote in early 1791, as evidence that Santanax's decision was indeed a conscious one. Whatever the case, however, the deed had been done. Polverell reluctantly accepted Santanax's decision and promulgated the decree in the areas under his jurisdiction. The decree was translated into Haitian Creole, and copies of it were distributed throughout the colony so all could receive the news. The slaves of Saint-Domingue were now free at last, but what would this freedom look like in practice? For many slaves, freedom began to look quite a lot like slavery. For one, former slaves were not allowed to leave their plantations. They were stuck doing the exact same dangerous, back-breaking work to which they'd been subjected before, but now at least they were compensated for their labor. After all, plantations were the basis of Saint-Domingue's entire economy, and the commissioners needed them back up and running as soon as possible. To be fair, the commissioners sought to institute a series of reforms that would, quote, transform the plantations once operated through a brutal hierarchy into farms, worked by salaried workers, and run with their active participation, end quote. Use of the whip and other corporal punishments were now forbidden. Plantation workers were allowed to elect their own managers and vote on important matters that concerned all in the plantation. The only way to leave one's plantation, however, was to join the army, but that proposition had its own risks. 
Sure, life in post-emancipation Saint-Domingue was far from ideal, but it was far better than the alternative. Meanwhile, the military situation for the French continued to deteriorate. In September 1793, the first British soldiers made landfall on Saint-Domingue at the town of Jeremy. The town's inhabitants cheered, Long live the English, as 900 redcoats walked into the town and occupied it without a fight. Meanwhile, the strategically important French garrison at Molay Saint-Nicolas surrendered to the British also without putting up a fight. Santanax's primary objective in abolishing slavery was to win over the ex-slave insurgents to the Republican cause. Much to his frustration, however, this had not happened nearly as quickly or on as large as a scale as he had anticipated. Most insurgents remained wary of the Republicans' intentions. Their leaders, Jean-Francois and Biasu, remained firmly aligned with the Spanish crown. Santanax made overtures to the two leaders following his abolition of slavery. However, they refused to recognize the legitimacy of the French Republic, as they had no king. Jean-Francois and Biasu issued a joint statement wherein they laid out their political beliefs. They claimed that kings had ruled since the beginning of time, and that if the king of France had been lost, the king of Spain still remained, and he had graciously offered them his protection. Quote, we are the subjects of three kings, the king of the Congo, who is the master of all blacks, the king of France, who represents our father, and the king of Spain, who represents our mother, end quote. Furthermore, in the eyes of the insurgents, they had already freed themselves through blood and iron. They did not see themselves as needing their freedom granted to them by the Republicans, and so the appeal of the Republic rang hollow. For the time being, the biggest insurgent leaders remained ever loyal to Spain, but this would soon change. It is at this point that Toussaint Louverture enters our narrative at last. Toussaint Louverture was not born with that surname. It was one that he would have to go on to earn. He was born Toussaint Breda, named after the plantation on which he was enslaved until he was about 33 years old. According to tradition, Toussaint's father was a prince of the Arada, who lived in what is now Benin. Apparently, when Toussaint's father encountered other Arada people, they would bow before him, still recognizing him as their leader. Whether or not Toussaint was actually descended from royalty or not is not known for certain, although evidently the man who owned Toussaint's father treated him rather well. He gave him a large plot of land, as well as five slaves of his own, to help him cultivate it. Toussaint's father converted to Catholicism and married another slave woman with whom he had multiple children, of whom the eldest was Toussaint. Across all accounts, a portrait is painted of Toussaint as a man possessed of an imposing physique and a superior intelligence. Toussaint was rather well-educated for someone of his social standing. He could read and write, which already gave him a great advantage over his slave counterparts, who were largely illiterate. He was fluent in his father's native language of Arada, as well as in Creole, the mixture of French and various elements of African languages that were spoken by slaves across Saint-Domingue. He also knew some proper French, at least enough to dictate letters in that language, as well as a little Latin. Toussaint was a voracious reader, he read the works of Julius Caesar, as well as the Abbé Renal's lengthy History of the Two Indies. It is said Toussaint read the following passage obsessively, quote, Nature speaks in louder tones than philosophy or self-interest. Already there are established two colonies of fugitive Negroes, whom treaties and power protect from assault. Those lightnings announce the thunder. A courageous chief is wanted. Where is he? End quote. According to C.L.R. James, Toussaint read that passage again and again until he saw himself as the answer. He was destined to become the courageous chief who would lead his people from the bonds of slavery. Growing up, Toussaint was treated with, quote, 
a tenderness and care that people in Europe would scarcely imagine that slave children in Saint-Domingue could have ever received, end quote. Toussaint's master trusted him implicitly, and even turned to him for advice sometimes. In return, Toussaint gave his master complete loyalty. Toussaint's role on the plantation was that of a coach driver, a relatively privileged position for a slave to have. Hence, he was not subjected to the same back-breaking fieldwork that his fellow slaves were, and never once was he disciplined with the whip, leading at least one contemporary to write that he, quote, knew slavery in name only, end quote. When Toussaint was 33 years old, his master emancipated him, but even as a free man, Toussaint opted to stay at the bread of plantation. He was simply too vital to the plantation's day-to-day operations. When the slave revolt broke out in Saint-Domingue in August of 1791, Toussaint saved the lives of his master and his family. He prevented the slaves of the Breda plantation from massacring the masters and raising the plantation to the ground, the fate which had befallen so many others. He escorted his master and his family to the relative safety of Le Cap, and, after getting his affairs in order, Toussaint himself went off to join the revolution. What exactly had motivated him to do this? After all, Toussaint had been a free man at the time, and his life as a slave was much better than most. Many others in similar positions to Toussaint not only did what he did and defended their masters from being massacred by rebellious slaves, but remained loyal to them afterwards, often to death. So why did Toussaint choose to chart the course that he did? Attempting to discern what Toussaint genuinely believed from his own writings is a rather fraught proposition. His years as a slave had taught him the valuable skills of deception and flattery. He was a master manipulator. He told people what he thought they wanted to hear at any given time. Still, in reading his writings, one gets the sense that he was a man who did indeed hold genuine convictions. He seems to have truly believed in the ideals embodied in the revolutionary slogan, liberty, equality, and fraternity. By the time he joined the insurrection, Toussaint was already 45 years old, a relatively advanced age in a colony where the life expectancy for a slave was around 40. The men who served under him called him Old Toussaint, or, more affectionately, Papa Toussaint. At this point, he was still going by his slave's surname, Breda. He did not adopt the name Louverture until sometime in 1793. The significance of this name, Louverture, French for the opening, is uncertain. One story attributes the name to French General Etienne Laveau, who reportedly said of Toussaint's tactical ability that he could make an opening out of anything. Others believed that the name referred to a gap in Toussaint's front teeth. In all likelihood, however, the name Louverture likely had some closely held personal meaning to Toussaint, a meaning that has long since been lost to history. Initially, Toussaint served under the insurgent general Georges Biassou. He began to emerge as an important figure in the slave insurrection by late 1791, when he participated in the failed negotiations between Biassou, Jean-Francois, and the colonial administration. When Biassou swore his allegiance to the Spanish crown, Toussaint followed suit. It has been suggested that a lot of the royalist rhetoric coming from the camps of the insurgents at this time was Toussaint's doing, a conscious strategy in order to court Spanish favor. Even after Commissioner Santhanax abolished slavery in mid-1793, Toussaint, along with Biassou and most of the other leaders of the slave insurrection, maintained their allegiance to Spain. While it seems that some of them were genuine believers in the royalist cause, Toussaint's motivations were a bit more complex. Toussaint was well-informed. He knew what it was that the French Republic stood for, and that it was aligned more closely with his ideals than the Kingdom of Spain. Toussaint could have broken with Biassou and changed his allegiance to the Republic as soon as slavery had been abolished, 
but two factors prevented him from doing so. One was the precarious position of the French Republic. Nearly all the monarchies of Europe had sworn to destroy the revolution, and if the desperate state of the Republican project in Saint-Domingue itself was any indication, the French hardly stood a chance of winning in Europe. Simply put, Toussaint wanted to be on the winning side. The second factor that made Toussaint hesitant to fight for the Republican cause was the fact that the abolition of slavery proclaimed by Santanax only applied in the northern province, where he held jurisdiction. While Paul Varel indeed followed suit and proclaimed the abolition of slavery in the western and southern provinces, the real test was yet to come. The commissioner's decision had to be ratified by France's legislative body, now known as the National Convention. While the National Convention was dominated by the Jacobin Club, who were generally in favor of abolition, the moneyed interest represented by their rivals, the Girondins, would likely do everything they could to countermand the commissioner's authorities. If, and only if, the National Convention voted to abolish slavery for good, would Toussaint throw in his lot with the Republicans. For now, he merely sat back on the sidelines and bided his time. Commissioners Santanax and Polvorel knew that their decision meant little without the approval of the National Convention, and so they dispatched a commission of their own to travel back to France, inform the National Convention of the state of affairs in Saint-Domingue, and petition them to officially abolish slavery. This rather daunting task fell to three men, one white, one man of mixed racial heritage, and one black. The black man in question was named Jean-Baptiste Belli. He was a former slave who had purchased his freedom. He went on to serve with distinction in the colonial militia, and was wounded in action no less than six times. It would not be an easy journey for the three men. The British Royal Navy was already blockading the island, so they stowed away aboard a ship of white exiles heading for the United States. Upon arriving in Philadelphia, one can only imagine how the Saint-Domingue expatriates reacted upon learning of the men's mission. They were viciously assaulted, and believed very nearly escaped being lynched. After their brief little sojourn to the United States, the three men arrived in France in February of 1794. Perhaps somewhat to their surprise, the men of the National Convention welcomed them with open arms, and admitted them to the convention as deputies representing Saint-Domingue. One excited deputy addressed the convention as follows, quote, Since 1789, the aristocracy of birth and the aristocracy of religion have been destroyed, but the aristocracy of the skin still remains. That, too, is now at its last gasp, and equality has been consecrated. A black man, a yellow man, are about to join this convention in the name of all the free citizens of Saint-Domingue, end quote. The motion to abolish slavery throughout France and its holdings faced no opposition, and was quickly signed into law. Belli then gave a powerful speech of his own, quote, I was born in Africa. I was a slave in my childhood. Thirty-six years have passed since I became free through my own labor and purchased myself. Since then, over the course of my life, I have felt worthy of being French. It is the tricolor flag that has called us to our liberty. I vow on behalf of my brothers that it will fly on the shores and mountains of Saint-Domingue so long as there is but a drop of blood in our veins." End quote. At this, the famed revolutionary Georges Danton arose and proclaimed, quote, This is the death of the English. End quote. Now that slavery had been abolished officially, many believed in the sentiment of Belli's speech and expected that the ex-slaves would then flock to the Republican banner. Meanwhile, on Saint-Domingue, Toussaint Louverture was beginning to chart his own course, away from his commander, Biassou. Quote, I am Toussaint Louverture. My name is perhaps known to you. I have undertaken vengeance. I want liberty and equality to reign in Saint-Domingue, and I work to bring them into existence. 
Unite yourselves to us, brothers, and fight with us for the same cause. End quote. With this declaration, issued on August 29, 1793, Toussaint officially entered the scene as an independent political and military force. By March of that year, he and Biasu were in open conflict. Tension had been building up between the two for some time already. While much of the conflict between these two men was simply a clash of opposing personalities, Toussaint did have principled objections to some of Biasu's actions. Most notably, he disapproved of his practice of kidnapping black women and children and selling them to the Spanish as slaves. This sort of activity perhaps helped Toussaint realize that the Spanish were perhaps not the best allies in the struggle for freedom, as once victory had been achieved, they would simply turn around and attempt to reinstate slavery. Thanks to his disillusionment with the Spanish and his conflict with Biasu, Toussaint was already strongly considering defecting to the Republican cause. He had been in secret contact with Etienne Laveau, the senior general of the Republican forces in Saint-Domingue. Since March of 1794, Laveau had been desperately trying to convince Toussaint to switch his alliance to the Republic. No sooner had word that the National Convention had abolished slavery reached Toussaint's ears than he wrote to Laveau, accepting his offer to join the Republicans. Toussaint immediately got to work. He went from town to town, camp to camp, tearing down the Spanish flag and raising the tricolor flag of the French Republic. Along the way, he used his excellent rhetorical abilities to convince any soldiers he encountered to join him and the Republican cause. In this way, Toussaint commanded 4,000 men before the end of May 1794. With the strongest single military force on Saint-Domingue at his command, Toussaint easily recaptured the whole of the northern province for the French Republic. Biasu and Jean-Francois were no match for him. In one encounter, Toussaint nearly captured Jean-Francois himself, who barely managed to flee into the bushes, leaving all his personal effects behind him as he ran. Thanks to the combined efforts of Toussaint Louverture and Etienne Laveau, the French Republicans had defeated the Spanish-backed insurgents, and were now in control of the once fertile northern plain, where the slave rebellion had begun. But now a bigger challenge faced them, the British. In the time that it had taken Toussaint and Laveau to defeat the Spanish, the British, along with white French collaborators, had managed to capture Port-au-Prince, as well as St. Mark. Much of the western province of the colony had fallen to the British, and everywhere the British went, they reinstated slavery. Toussaint had managed to hold the line and prevented the British from entering the northern province, for now at least, but driving the British out of the colony entirely would be a difficult task. But we will discuss the fight against the British in more depth in the next episode. Additionally, we will see Toussaint finish his ascent to the heights of power. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like me to address, you can always email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in the episode description. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, William Connor, signing off.